0: Greetings, it is my privilege to share with you today's Easter message. And I've entitled The Inescapable Truth. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead is a true truth. And it's a a truth that matters. It's a truth that makes a difference even if other things in our life do not seem to make sense. And so I just want to share with you from it today. And so before we start, I'd like to pray and make a few initial comments. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your your son, the Lord Jesus, whom you sent to whom you sent to this world to to live a morally perfect life, to model for us what it means to be a true human being in your image. He is the image of the invisible God, and he's the image of what a human being ought to be. And so we thank you for his life, and then especially, Lord, we thank you for his um, atoning death on the cross that he would die for us and and take the penalty for our sin not only would he fulfill righteousness by living a perfect life but he would pay the debt that we owe for sin and uh, fulfill that righteousness for you so that now through those of us who trust in you you will um who trust in jesus you will you will grant jesus's righteousness to our account and our sin to his account and that has been paid in full And the way that we know that it has been paid in full, the way that you uh, demonstrate that you are satisfied and that all righteousness has been fulfilled and that all holiness has been kept, is that you, the holy God, rose Jesus from the dead. You raised him up and, and declared him innocent. And so the one who loved us so, so much that he would die for us is now living and is able to send his spirit to live in our lives and in our hearts, and then to give us a future and a hope and a wonderful um, a wonderful way to live, even while we're here, knowing that it's all going to be okay, that Jesus makes it okay. He forgives our sin. He gives us the ability to please you. We are pleasing because of what he did, and so now we can um, live gratefully and joyfully under your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my passage, this message is, actually kind of a neat one. It's always easy for a pastor to lean on other preachers and kind of use their outline. And when we do so, we're supposed to give uh, credit and and make clear that we're not plagiarizing. And so in this case, I'm going to be plagiarizing quite a bit from a, a really famous preacher, actually. His name is the Apostle Paul. And so I think he would be just fine with us using his sermon. We understand, of course, that uh, Saul was his name when he was born, and he was given the name Saul, and he lived in a a Jewish culture. He was raised under the uh, legalistic system of the Pharisees. He was, um, as far as legalistic righteousness, he says that he was faultless. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was uh, faithful to his people in Israel. And then uh, along comes Jesus, and and Jesus uh, has these wonderful miracles and and then he um, is rejected by the people of Israel and crucified. And then he um, supposedly, according to Saul, he would have called it a, a conspiracy theory or a rumor. Um, Paul, Saul did not believe it. I keep calling him Paul because his name changes to, to Paul. But um, when he was still Saul, he he thought that these people who followed Jesus were heretics; that they were ruining the Judaistic religion that he had been trained in, and they were a threat to all things good and he considered it a favor to god to actually oppose the the movement called the way the people who followed jesus and he thought jesus was a uh, a fake and a scoundrel and, and all of his followers were trying to cause trouble and then of course um, you know this story where saul was on his uh, journey to another city to actually uh, persecute more of the christians and to throw them in prison he had papers authorizing him to do so and on the way, he met this Jesus um, in the road. That as he was walking along, a light shone around Saul, and he he heard Jesus's voice, and Jesus spoke to him, and he encountered the real the real Jesus, and and um, and the voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul answered, You know, who are you, Lord? And and the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so there's a lot of lights that went on for Saul that had not been on before. And he did not understand it. And he was blinded even for a while. And a few days later, uh, someone came and, and prayed over him. And the scales were taken from his eyes. And his vision was restored. And he was, uh, he was one who used to oppose Christians. And now he became one of their greatest spokesmen. And at first, the church didn't even trust him or believe him. They were afraid of him because he had so much authority and he had been um, so evil to them. He was even consenting unto the, the death of Stephen, one of the early deacons, and he was a Stephen who was a martyr. And so Saul had a, a reputation that, that uh, many people were afraid of, but God moved in the life of a couple of the Christians, and Barnabas came and got him and, and introduced him to the people, and, and the word went out that this one who once opposed Jesus was now speaking boldly for him in all of the courts. And so we don't have any of his early sermons, but we do know that he was preaching and teaching, and he did so for many years. So we know that Barnabas and Saul were, were teachers among a, a number of teachers in the church in Antioch, and um, they were first called Christians there. And the, um, the elders of the people, the Holy Spirit, influenced them to set aside uh, Saul and Barnabas, I think by now he's called Paul, and to have them begin the ministry, a ministry of a missionary work, And so Paul and Barnabas begin their missionary journeys, and they start to go around in different places. And in in Acts chapter 13, we have the first recorded message of the Apostle Paul. And so he's been preaching on and off for for years, but now we have a chance to actually see his first sermon. And so that's the sermon that I'm going to trace through today. And I think there's a lot of uh, good information in there, of course, and and it has a lot to say about the resurrection. It basically is full of the resurrection. And so um, the sermon is in three parts with a conclusion. And so I'll follow those three parts through and try to to get us to follow and figure out what what Paul is saying. So the first part I'm titling the history of fulfilled promises. And so uh, we'll start this right out here with the realization that a lot of what um, Paul is doing here is trying to help us understand that this whole Jesus story is part of the big grand plan of God. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't an accident. It was something that God had worked out and worked through for many years. And so Paul starts with this um, history lesson of how God has been working with Israel. So standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, People of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. So that would be through Moses, right? The slavery in Egypt. And for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. So these children of Israel who were rebellious against God, um, God endured their conduct for, for 40 years until he finally brought them in. And then he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land as his people uh, giving their land to his people as their inheritance and all of this took about 450 years and after this God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet and then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin who ruled for 40 years and after removing Saul he made David their king and God testified concerning him I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God brought, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And so Paul is, is going through the history of Israel, and he brought us up to David, and he talked about how David was so great, and then he brought Jesus just as he promised, the Savior Jesus. And before he brought Jesus, he sent John, the John the Baptist to lead the way and tell the people to repent. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is someone coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And so Paul is now telling us how the rulers of Israel viewed John. They saw, they knew they were waiting for someone. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And here John comes and he raises their appetite. He raises their interest. Who is it? Who do you suppose I am? And I'm telling you, someone's coming after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie. And you realize, of course, that when this person came, they was, he was rejected. Jesus was rejected. But there was a lot of discussion, a lot of thinking, and I'm sure Paul was around during that time and, and he was aware of the debates so how do we interpret John the Baptist where does he come from and what are we going to do so the first part of the message is this history of fulfilled promises god took care of them god took care of them took care of them and kept his promises to the forefathers to Abraham Isaac and Jacob and he comes all the way down to John the Baptist and so now the second part and you can tell it's the second part because Paul gives us a hint because he readdresses the, uh, his audience by by name or by by who they are. They're his brothers, right? And so the second part of his message is talking about how Jesus himself fulfills specific promises to David. Look at what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, that's our indicator that he's in a second part here. Brothers and sisters, from the children of Abraham and you, um, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, from the children of Abraham and you, God-fearing Gentiles, It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. So we've been given this message. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Look at what Paul is saying here. The very scriptures that he misunderstood, that he could not understand how Jesus could fulfill them. He rejected Jesus, just like these rulers. He did not recognize who Jesus was. But then once he saw who Jesus was through the resurrection, seeing the resurrected Jesus, he realized that Jesus fulfilled everything that had been read every single Sabbath day as a little boy growing up. He knew these words. And so in condemning Jesus, they fulfilled the very words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. I wish we had time to unpack all those phrases, but look, especially they when they had carried out all that was written about him, everything that happened, the mockery, the the, uh, the being on the cross, the being killed with other sinners, being um, being thirsty, being rejected, the darkness, the curtain being torn from top to bottom, all these things were all written about Jesus. And and then they took him down from the cross. Paul does not avoid the term cross here, which we'll learn in a little bit. is a really offensive thing. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross. And they laid him in a tomb. And so this is all important things about how Jesus fulfilled the promises to David, because God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And so Jesus not only raised from the dead, not only is it reported that he was raised from the dead, but there were many days and many witnesses who saw him over that time frame between Jesus' death and resurrection and Pentecost. It was like a 50-day uh, time frame in there. And so Jesus appeared many times. One time he appeared to as many as 500 at a time, and many of those people were still living when Paul is giving this sermon. And so he knows that you could go and ask. He says, they are now his witnesses. It's not they were his witnesses. They are now his witnesses to our people. Right now, there's people who have seen the resurrected Jesus walking around, and you could talk to them. We tell you the good news. What God has promised, what God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So um, this is good news. This is the gospel. This is not an accident. God promised our ancestors that he would come and relieve them and take them out of their suffering and give them a, a Messiah, a servant who would, who, who, by whose stripes we would all be healed. The one who would um, raise from the dead, just as Jonah was on the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and was raised back up. And so Jesus is fulfilling all these promises and he is fulfilled for us so that goodness was given to our ancestors and now they're fulfilled for us. So we're in the generation that gets to see it. And it's all because he raised up Jesus from the dead. And then Paul goes into some specific promises to David. He says, And as is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so this is how we recognize that the the promise of God to his son, the the one all the nations rage and they plot against it. And the one in heaven laughs. He says, this is, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so there's a clear indication that there is a son of God who is a special relationship to God, who is God the Mm -hmm. Son. And so Paul points to that. That second psalm is used a lot of times in the New Testament for this very purpose, to show the royal deity of Jesus. And then Paul also says God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. And so one of the reasons, many reasons, but one of the reasons that God raised him from the dead was to demonstrate that he will never decay. His body will never rot in the grave. And as God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So here in Isaiah 55, there's a promise to this servant, the faithful one. And, and God promises that I'm going to give you, this my servant, these sure blessings that were promised to David. What kind of promises were there to David? So it's also stated elsewhere, you will never let your holy one see decay. And so here from Psalm 16, um, David is speaking in Psalm 16 about asking God to spare his life and to take care of him. And, and there's the, the sense in which uh, God will protect David and not let him die. So he won't see death, but the words have more meaning than that. And they apply to the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus. And you will not let his body see decay after he is dead. And so um, Paul explains that. He says, now when David had served God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried with his ancestors, and guess what? His body decayed. So, that promise was not to David essentially, ultimately, it was a promise to his son, his greater son, the one who would reign on the throne of David, the Messiah. And so, verse 37 But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And so, this Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises to David to the nth degree, to the max. And so, Paul's first part of the message is history of fulfilled promises and all the way up to John the Baptist. And then now he talks about how Jesus specifically fulfills the promises to David by being raised from the dead, not seeing decay, by having his body um, laid in a tomb, hanging on a cross. Everything had been done to him, as been predicted in the scriptures. He was sentenced to death, with, even though he was not guilty. He was innocent all of those things from Isaiah 53 and other places in the Bible. He was, as John the Baptist said, he's the Lamb of God, like the Passover Lamb. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So then now Paul addresses his audience again by, by referring to them as um, brothers and sisters again. And this time, he's, this third part of Paul's message is the implications of the fulfillment. So is what is famous with Paul is we see a therefore. Therefore... My brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So because Jesus did what he did and fulfilled all these things that God had promised, because he did that, then I can proclaim to you that forgiveness of sins is possible. You can have your sins forgiven. They can be taken care of. You you would no longer be guilty of your sins because through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. It's not a matter of doing the law. It's not a matter of keeping the righteousness. It's a matter of trusting Jesus. So through him, everyone who believes in him is set free from every sin. A justification, a, a a legal standing before God, a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. There's no way you or I could keep the Ten Commandments sufficiently or any of the other laws of Moses and be... In a situation where God owed us eternal life. None of us can live that perfectly. None of us can earn by works of our life, by doing good deeds, by not doing bad deeds. None of us can live perfectly enough to be justified before God, that we could say to God, you owe me eternal life. None of us are that perfect. There's actually only one person who lived that perfectly. Jesus did have perfect works, righteousness. He did live perfectly, and he could say to God, you owe me eternal life because I have lived a perfect life. But Jesus willingly gave up his life to be a ransom, to be an exchange for us to pay the penalty of our sins. And so that's how you and I can have a justification that we could not have from under the law. We get justified through faith in Jesus. So Jesus's work is the work that gets counted on our account. And Jesus's righteousness is what God sees us in. He sees us as just as righteous as Jesus because we trust him and believe what he says about him. And so Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our our great savior. He's the one who pays the price and takes our place. And so through him, we have a justification that there's no way we could have ever done through the law. And so that's the implication here. We have forgiveness of sins. We have this because of Jesus's death and payment and through his righteousness to prove that it was accepted, then we have these things. And so those are the implications of this fulfillment. So Paul's message is really powerful. He starts with his audience, what they're familiar with, and he tells them about how God has fulfilled all of history to them. He's fulfilled promises. And then specifically, he fulfills the promises to David to the nth degree by raising Jesus from the dead and proving that he does not see decay. And the implications of that for you and I is good news. You and I can be forgiven of our sins. We can have a justification that is not from the law. You and I can be okay in God's eyes. It's amazing. It's a wonderful gospel. We lost it all. We were sinners. But Jesus does it all. He lives a perfect life. And because he's raised from the dead, then we get all of his righteousness on our account. And we are acceptable and beautiful and lovable to God the Father in the Lord Jesus, our elder brother. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, because if we trust in him, we receive the benefits of his love. So that's the first three parts of his message. But as a good preacher, he has an application. And he says, Do not scoff, wonder, and then perish. And so Paul finishes his message. He says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. I wonder if Paul's voice shook at this part because I know my heart and I would have because I get emotional when I think about what God has done for me. But here Paul is thinking, do not, do not let happen to you what the prophets warn about. And I think what happened to Paul when he was still Saul, when he still rejected Jesus, he he refused to believe the evidence. He was so persuaded that nobody could be who Jesus claimed to be. Nobody could be God the Son. Nobody would raise from the dead. Nobody, would, No, the Messiah would never hang on a tree. And so for these various reasons, Paul, when he was a young man, before he was converted, he refused to believe. And that's what the prophets warn about. The prophet says, look out, look, you scoffers. Oh. This is stupid. This is a ridiculous idea. You sco- Paul was a scoffer. When he was there uh, approving on the death of Stephen, he was a scoffer. And, and wonder, wonder, be amazed. This is amazing. I can't believe this, but it's, but I won't believe it. It's just amazing. It's just crazy. And then perish. If that's what you choose to do, if you, that's what the prophets were about, because God says, I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. So it's it's unbelievable, but it's an inescapable truth that Jesus raised from the dead. And it was unbelievable to Paul. He could not, it was ridiculous. It, he didn't even, in a million years, he would never believe that. Most Jews in his day would never believe that. And so even if someone told him. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament from Habakkuk. And it's a passage that reminds us that in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, um, The prophet is finding out that Israel is indeed in trouble. It's been sinning and it needs to be judged by God as a nation. God's going to bring about judgment. But the most unbelievable thing was that God was going to bring that judgment through a wicked, more wicked nation than Israel itself. God was going to use the wicked to judge his people. And it seemed unbelievable. No way, no way. And so this is, so you scoffers, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to do something that you would not believe it, even if someone told you. And so even if Habakkuk tells you this is what God is doing, you're going to refuse to believe God's plan. You're going to scoff and say, no way, God would never do that. God would never punish us through a more wicked nation. And now Paul is actually almost predicting what's going to happen among his brothers and sisters, the Jews. They're going to reject him. They're going to reject his message. And they're going to scoff and wonder and perish. And they're not going to believe it. They're not going to believe that God would judge a Messiah on the cross, a cursed one on the cross, and bring about salvation for all of the people. They just refuse to believe it. And so even though someone told them, even though the apostles, the witnesses who saw it happen, who saw the risen Jesus, even when they talked to them, people will not believe it. They'll just scoff and wonder and waste away. They'll be blown away. They'll be like chaff that the wind blows away. They'll perish. They'll diminish and they'll disappear. And so that is Paul's great warning. Do not scoff, wonder, and perish. Do not scoff. Do not make fun. Do not be just amazed, but that's the craziest idea I've ever heard. And do not diminish. Do not disappear because of your unbelief. Now, I want you to understand that for Paul and for the Jews in general, they were not just uh, eager to believe this. They were not expecting this. It was really hard for them. They were skeptical. Um, First of all, they had to face the fact that in their scripture, in their theology, they had no place whatsoever for a monotheistic, and in their monotheistic religion, their Lord your God is one God, there's only one, he's the only one. There is no way for them to conceive of a trinity. No way for them to understand that a human being could also be God. Their understanding of the Messiah, of the servant that was predicted in, in Isaiah, all of these things, they they perceived it as the whole nation, maybe as being the servant, or maybe some individual prophet. But it was just beyond their thinking that anyone would actually be the son of God and God the son. And yet Jesus came and taught them clearly from the scriptures how many times, like when he said, we quoted the psalm where David said, "How if how could David call him his Lord?" How he said, "My Lord said to my Lord, set your foot, uh, set at my side until I make your enemies your footstool." How could David call him Lord and him be David's son at the same time. How could, it's because he was God's son. And they, the apostles, uh, the Pharisees uh, attacked Jesus and argued with him. And they said, you don't even know Abraham. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus took the, the I am self-existent name of God, Yahweh, and applied it to himself. And the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be God because he knew, he knew Abraham's day. He was eternal. And so the idea that this man could be also God, the God-man, the, the, the miracle incarnation that God would be born through a virgin, and, and all of that stuff was just incomprehensible. They would scoff at it. And so you need to understand that it was not easy for Paul to make this jump to believe in Christianity. He Everything about him was opposed to this idea. He was very strongly set against it, as were all the Jews. And so it was a super huge surprise. The other thing is that they really did believe that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. There's no way that their Messiah could ever be a king who was hung on a tree. That was the way you guaranteed somebody would never, ever be blessed. And yet they did not realize that Isaiah said that he was pierced for our iniquities. He was he was abused for us. And so Jesus was cursed on a tree, but that's because he bore the curse of our sins in his innocent self, in his innocent body, in his innocent spirit. And he bore all of the burden of our sin. He was cursed so that we would not be cursed. And so we understand now, but Paul says later that the cross is a stumbling block for Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. It seems so silly to a wise person. How could anyone else's death make any difference for me? That's why it's foolish. But for the Jews, it was a stumbling block. No way would our Messiah ever be hung on a tree. So your, your theology, everything about it would teach you There's no way that Jesus could be God. There's no way that my Messiah would ever hang on a tree. Those things prove for sure that Jesus is not who he said he was. And this whole idea of a resurrection, some people think that these, uh, these ancients, the, the apostles and stuff, they were just so eager for a resurrection, and they were so eager for that to be true, and they wanted it to be true so bad that they thought maybe it would um, happen. And so it was just wishful thinking, and that somehow maybe it would happen. And, and so they were predisposed to look for it, and no. Now their whole theology was there is no resurrection at all. Many of their people, the Sadducees, the leaders, th- th- said that there was no resurrection at all. Not in the future, not ever. That once you died, that was the end. And so that's not uncommon. But even within Judaism, that was a strong uh, movement. But for those who did believe in the resurrection, they perceived that as something that would be at the final judgment, that God would raise everybody after the end of time, at the very end when everything was, um, when God judged everyone. They had no concept in their theology for the idea of a resurrection that would occur now in history. or For sure that a person would resurrect now and be the example, the, the Messiah would come and be resurrected and go to heaven and be the example for all. And that was completely out of their thinking. So these are really strong objections. There was a, they, were, they weren't gullible or wishful thinking or hoping for it. They were completely surprised by the resurrection. And then, you know, maybe for us today, we would add on there that we don't believe in the resurrection because we don't believe in miracles. We don't think that anything can happen outside of um, science. It's impossible for something to happen that unless it's proven in a scientific lab. And so we live in a closed system, a natural system. We don't accept the fact that, that God is outside the system and that he can intervene in time, space, history and do something. But God did do that. But I just want to point out that there was not a predisposition to believe these things. the disciples themselves were could not even believe it when they heard it the first time and the very fact that the um, the very witnesses who who first saw it were women is really just strong evidence that it really did happen that way because if you were making this up you would never choose women as the witnesses because in those days they were not regarded as valid witnesses in court at all and the the details that are included in and the, the the way that Peter looks bad. And if you were trying to make all this up, you wouldn't make your first founders start out with so many doubts. And Thomas, who said, even after all the other witnesses told him, all the other disciples said, we saw him, we saw him. And Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas wouldn't believe it even then until Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus said, you know, I'll appear to you because you're an apostle. You need to have eyewitness account. But I want you to know, Thomas, that you'd be even more blessed if you believe without seeing. But come here, Thomas. Stick your hand in my side. Look at the holes in my hand. I am, I'm alive. I'm here, but it's me. And Thomas, Thomas was able to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepted worship. He was God and he wasn't cursed anymore. And he was the one who resurrected from the dead. And it was real and it happened. And so these guys were surprised. These people, the early Christians were surprised and amazed by wonder as anybody. They, this is not something they were planning on. This is not something they made up. This is not something that happened hundreds of years later and their theories came up. No, this was the day. Right away, they understood and there was witnesses. And so I want to ask you the question, what evidence would it take for you to believe that the resurrection is a real fact of history? These people did not believe it. They would never have wanted to. Their theology was predisposed against it. Paul had weighed the evidence and concluded that John the Baptist was crazy and that Jesus was wrong and all of his followers were wrong, so much so that he was killing them and sending them to prison. But something must have happened that was persuasive enough to change Paul's mind, to change Thomas's mind, to change all the disciples and all the apostles and all the 500 people that saw him. Something must have been significant enough evidence to persuade them that it was really a fact, it was really true. And so I would ask you the question, what evidence would it take to make you believe? Because I'm, what I'm trying to say is there was enough evidence for them to believe, even though they didn't want to. It was just undeniable. It was an inescapable fact. It was an inescapable truth. Jesus really rose from the dead. There's nothing you can do or say about it. You know this is important for us to understand. I, I heard someone give an illustration the other day that um, somebody and they had been in a church and you know they had followed after the Lord and stuff, but the pastor of the church had fallen into sin and and had you know there's a lot of uh, leaders who fall morally and that happens just like anybody else can fall. And so it was real discouragement to him and he was going to reject Jesus. He was going to reject Christianity. And uh, the pastor said to him. Not the pastor that fell, but another person said to him, you know, what does your pastor's fall have to do with whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? And the guy answered, well, nothing. And he said, that's the whole point. The point is, is that Jesus rose from the dead is a real fact. It's an inescapable fact. And it doesn't matter how unfaithful some human pastor might have been that disappointed you and discouraged you. Did that pastor's moral fall? Did that cause Jesus not to raise from the dead anymore? No. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, and that's an inescapable fact, if that's an inescapable truth, then you have to deal with that. You have to respond to that reality. And so that's the last part of my message today, is I want to kind of summarize some things about the the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. So we saw Paul's good sermon. I'm going to just put a little tail in on the end of it. And I want to talk about this. It's the good news that changes your life. This is the good news that changes your life. And I want to deal with some objections or some perspectives, actually, on life after death. So this good news that changes your life. There's a lot of people in the world today who would even ask the question, is there any life after death at all? And a lot of people, the scientific realm, the naturalist answer is, is when you die, it's all done. You, You don't have to fear death. Because you're done. You you just cease to exist. You're not even there anymore anyway. And so death is the end. And so this life is all you have. So eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Um, Try to live a noble life. Try to have a meaningful life. Try to live on in the memories of other peoples. But you yourself are gone. Is that what the answer is? No, because what really happened is, yes, Jesus was raised. So the fact that Jesus raised from the dead demonstrates and proves as a fact once and for all that there is life after death. And so the end of our life, the end of your life is not the end. It's not it's not it's not just disappearing. There is a real reality that we face after we die. And so we will be raised. We will have some sort of existence forever somewhere. Another question or another perspective is is well okay so maybe we live after we die but we're like a drop in the ocean there's a lot of religions of the world uh eastern mysticism and stuff that would say that that we uh, return to the the great uh the one we return back to all of nature you know star wars is kind of full of this that that we die and uh, you know our remains become the food for plants and and we you know there's this endless cycle like the um cycle of life and the lion king storyline and, and so what, what happens is we, we're still there, but we're like a drop that becomes part of the ocean. We lose our individuality. We lose our, our person-ness, but we're all part of the one, the big life. And so we're in the big circle. So you and I are a drop right now, but when we die, we, we get absorbed into the ocean. But the resurrection of Jesus tells us, no, no, there's two things about this resurrection that are different than that. It's personal and there's love there. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he retains and demonstrates that he retains his person. He is still Jesus, the person. He is not a different person. He's not absorbed into the great one. He doesn't become personless. He retains his individuality. He's still the one. He's still the one who has those friends. And the the people talk to him and they hold on to him and they, they... they ask questions and he eats fish and and he's got a new kind of body, can just go through walls, but he somehow he can still eat. It's an amazing thing, but he's a person and there's love. You see, if you and I, um, what, what gives our life the most meaning right now is really the fact that we love other people. And if there's no life after death, the, the most important thing we have right now would be love, right? And so how could, you know, somebody would say, well, you don't need to be afraid of dying because you just stop existing. Or you don't need to be afraid of dying because you become part of the, the you become one drop in the ocean. You're still out there. But the fact that both of those offer me no love, there's no love in my future. The one thing that makes my life significant now, I'm going to lose forever either way. How could I not fear that kind of death? And yet what Jesus' resurrection proves to us It's the good news that changes our life because we realize that you and I have a personal future. We're going to be ourselves. We're going to be, I'm still going to be me. I'm going to recognize myself. I'm going to recognize my thoughts. I'm going to be me. You're going to be you. And I'm going to be able to love you and you love me. We're going to still have relationships and friendships even better than we could ever have had here. And so there's, something about that good news that it makes my life worth living. This is not the end. This is really just the, the beginning. It's like the first stage of a multi-stage wonderful story. And then um, other people might argue that there's reincarnation. Well, you know, you after you die, you come back as somebody else, or after you die, you come back in a different a form, maybe a, a lesser form if you live poorly, or in a higher form if you lived well. And so there's karma, and it spins around and around, and just can be going over and over and over. But Jesus' resurrection says, no, no, you come back as you, and you come back with your body. You get a new body, but it's recognizable. And people recognize who Jesus was. They knew it was really him. And the way that God had made his earthly body, his heavenly body, was was different. But it was like unto it. It carried a, a resemblance. And so you and I are going to have our bodies back, and it's going to be us. It's not going to be some kind of a karma-based, round and round, sometimes come back as an ant, sometimes come back as a cow, sometimes come back as a human. No, we get to be ourselves, and it'll be you and your body that get to be raised from the dead. This is good news that changes your life right now. We don't need to be afraid of things. What about people say, well, it sounds really good, and I hope that God loves me. I hope that... That, you know, when God gets to the end and I get to the judgment, he'll weigh all the scales and he put my good deeds on one side and my bad deeds on the other and he'll compare me to other people. And there's a lot of people worse than me. There's a lot of people maybe better than me, but he'll weigh it out. And he, he kind of grades on a curve. Maybe it's a strict curve, but he grades on a curve. And, you know, I hope that I'm going to be okay. I can't know for sure, but I hope that God will accept me because I've tried really hard to live a good life, you No. Know? That's not the right answer to have either, because Jesus' resurrection shows us that we have confidence by his grace. Did you catch what Paul said in his message? We have a justification that you can't get from the law. We have a standing with God. God owes us, listen now, God owes us eternal life because of our good works, our good works, come from jesus he is the one whose good works are owed so to say it more correctly god owes us eternal life because jesus's life was perfect if you weigh jesus on the scales there's nothing on the side of sin and that's exactly what matters if there was one speck of dust on the wrong side then we are guilty of sin we cannot be with the holy god ever but jesus pays it all and so the fact that God paid it all, gives me confidence that it does not depend on my ability to live the right way now. I receive this as a gift. That's why it's only through faith. I trust Jesus. And because he gives us a completed promise, he gives us eternal life because he um, gives us his grace. It's a gift. It's a free gift. And so my confidence is great. It's not, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, I know that I'm saved because I know Jesus paid it all and I have been given his righteousness as a free gift. I'm freed from the fear that I'll mess up and lose it. I can't lose it because I never earned it. My confidence comes from realizing that it's all by grace. And so with these wonderful truths, you and I, we live in Jesus' joy. I want your joy, my joy to be in you, he says, and we live in his power. I've given you, remember what Paul said in his message, he said, we were freed from every sin. We're freed from every sin. We have the power to live the way Jesus wants us to live now. And so in this good news, we've been raised with Jesus. We have a future that's certain, just like Jesus' resurrection. And our future is personal. And I know I'm going to get to love my friends and my family, the other believers who are there. And I'm going to have my own body, and I'm going to recognize myself, I'm going to know who it is, and I am confident that these things will happen. And so all of that is true, and so now I can live without fearing death. I live in his joy and in his power. This is what it's like to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul gives that warning: Do not be guilty. Do not be one of the ones who scoffs and say, "Oh, this religion is so stupid." It's so childish. It's so ridiculous. No, don't scoff. Don't say, I am amazed at what dumb stuff those Christians believe. No, don't scoff and be amazed like that and perish. No, accept it as a gift and believe it is true because it is true. It doesn't matter what else has gone wrong in your life. Nothing changes the fact that Jesus really did raise from the dead. And because he really did raise from the dead, everything else is going to be okay if you trust in him. So, if you scoff, if you just stand amazed and don't accept, then you, the Bible says, like Pauls warned you, you'll be guilty. You'll be guilty of wasting away. You will you will be unregarded, you'll blow away like the wicked, the chaff that blows away. Even if somebody tells it to you, it'll still be your destiny. But if you receive it and believe it because it is true, And when you realize it's true for you, the meaning of it makes all the difference. Then you and I can live in all of that joy and power. I hope that you trust Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you so much for how you've paid for my sins through Jesus's life and death and resurrection. That I am now totally okay in your eyes. and That I'm going to be free from sin, that someday in heaven, when I have my new body and, and everything is right on the new heaven, new earth, I'm going to be the best version of myself that you ever wanted. That I'll understand myself even better. and All the things that I wanted, I want those because you have created me that way and it'll turn out just great. And so I'm so excited about the future. Help me live faithfully, faithfully for you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about our church, online resources, and in-person services, our website is the best place to check, wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus, and may you grow in his grace.